One of the things that uh, is exciting about this season for us as we uh, anticipate the arrival of Christmas is uh, we kind of enter into a posture of waiting, you know. Uh, Advent literally means the arrival, the uh, arrival, the coming, the uh, the arrival of the Christ. And so uh, this time of year is the time of year when the church has historically recounted that posture of waiting uh, as we um, uh, recount what it was like for the faithful to, to wait for the arrival of the Messiah. And as the church, we're in this posture between memory on one hand, looking back, and hope on the other, looking forward. And uh, as we do we, and enter into this Advent season, we embrace the weight, right? We invade, embrace the weight of what it means to hope for the whole creation to be set free from its, its bondage to decay. And, uh, and we await for the arrival of one greater. And so for four Sundays during December, our Advent season, uh, we'll step out of our series through the book of Acts, and we will uh, look at witnesses to the first Advent, uh, witnesses to the first coming of Christ. Uh, and each witness kind of bears... Um, bears witness to one greater than themselves. And so that's what we're calling this Advent series, to one greater. And we'll see Jesus through the lens of each one of these witnesses, kind of like um, light refracted through different lenses, each witness showing us a different dimension of what it means for God to arrive in the flesh in the person of Jesus. So um, with that... Uh, let's pray this morning as we uh, look at this Matthew passage. Lord, we do uh, love you, are grateful for all that you have revealed in your story, uh, the scriptures. Uh, we are thankful for each other and for the grace to be gathered as your church, um, to come underneath uh, your teaching, your instruction, Lord, from the scriptures, and to be uh, reminded and recentered around the body and blood of Jesus as a people. And so, Lord, we invite you um, to mess with us this morning, that your spirit, we ask that your spirit would help us to see afresh and respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Advent is, uh, is an exciting time, but if you think back to what it first meant for Jesus to arrive, it was anything but exciting, I think. I think it was utterly terrifying. Um, we, listen, we read this story every year at Christmas time, and you think, you know, it's cute, and you put up little figurines on your shelf or whatever, and it's, it's really quaint. But there is, I mean, it's, it's drama of a high order when you actually slow down and read what's going on in this story. And so let's look at verse 18. As we look at the, we're going to look at Joseph's witness today, uh, his witness to one greater. Uh, let's look at this, his, his story. It's interesting. You know, Matthew records kind of Joseph's experience. Uh, Luke records Mary's. Uh, John and Mark both just skip right over it. But um, <laughs> John's more concerned about the word becoming flesh. Mark just wants to get going. And... Uh, 
But Matthew, he helps us see what's going on from Joseph's perspective. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, uh, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is a fully drama-packed sentence. Matthew, the author of the text, uses the word Genesis. This is the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. And Genesis can mean birth, but it's a much broader word. Birth is almost far too narrow. And so when we talk about the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, really a better word would be the origin. This is the beginning, uh, if you will, of this Jesus story. It's an origin story. Um, this is the way that it started with Jesus the Messiah. The origins of how he came about and the things he did took place. And so an origin story helps us understand the background of a character and helps us understand the nature and destiny of a character. Do you remember uh, when you had all the dark kind of superhero movies in the 90s or just really bubblegum superheroes in movies in the 90s, but then Batman Begins came out and it just changed the entire genre? I don't know about you guys, but like my mind was blown. Like I had a three-hour conversation after that movie in the parking lot with my friends, which tells you what a sad state of life I was in when that movie came out. I was lonely, and anyway. But for us, we, we were absolutely astounded by the way that origin series has kind of changed how you saw the character. And then it launched a whole bunch of other origin series because you realize we can make a ton of money off of this. And so everybody started doing their own superhero origin uh, stories. Um, I remember, too, back when Lost came out. Anybody a Lost watcher? I'm just dating myself right now. So when Lost came out, it had all these people that were on an island, and you knew nothing about how they got there, what was going on. And then each episode, it would go back to their origin story to help you understand just how it is that they're this screwed up and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we loved the origin stories because it helped us understand the character. And so <clears throat> we care about the character of Jesus. We say he's our king and we're following him. And so it's helpful for us to go, what does the origin story of Jesus have to tell us about the nature of his character and the story that's unfolding in and through Jesus? And so uh, Matthew is very clear that this origin story worked in a way to highlight what is to come. In fact, in the ancient world, your origins had a lot to say about what people could expect of your character. Uh, you would never be seen as being able to transcend or be better than your origins. If you had shady origins, you were a shady character. And that was kind of your social ceiling. And so a noble birth was very important in the ancient world. Um, and so what is about to take place in the account of Jesus, the Messiah, his advent is actually important for what the gospel reveals. Uh, according to one ancient historian, Jewish historian, the background of a person is an indication to the character that they have. And so what this means is we see a scandal ensuing in the first line of this story. Uh, when Mary was betrothed to Joseph, uh, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, betrothed is to be pledged to be married. Um, and so today, when you get engaged, uh, you're kind of like, you're, you can still wiggle out of things, right? I don't know if you've ever had a broken engagement. 
I had an almost, maybe, I don't know, like, I don't know if it was an almost engagement. It was at least, like, guilt into, like, maybe we should probably commit our lives together. And then I broke off of that. I hope she's not ever listening to any of these podcasts. Um, And found, like, the freedom to make my own decisions. And then I wanted to get married to Lauren, right? So she will listen to the podcast. So anyway, um, and so... Anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about all this. Oh, when you're betrothed in the ancient world, you, 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 are, you're really, you have signed the dotted line, in, in a sense. And so it's a legally binding kind of engagement. It's not like our engagement. And so, for example, if you were betrothed to somebody and you were a woman in the ancient world, you would, uh, if your betrothed husband died before you were literally married, you would be his widow, right? So you... All of whatever was his now would be yours, okay? So it's legally binding. And this would happen in this uh, culture for women between ages 12 to 14, and the husbands were usually 17 to 18 when they're financially stable. And so um, what Matthew is saying is they hadn't come together yet. They hadn't gone from betrothal to marriage where she would leave her father's household and enter her household, and they hadn't had sex yet, okay, is what he's saying. And so... um, and by the way, this is all a community reality. None of it's just like private. You don't go to the justice of the peace. It's your entire village knew everything about you. Okay, and so this is a very public thing. And now, what she's found to be with child, um, Matthew is clear that it's not because of the way all the other babies in the world are made. Right? That this is a very special baby. That this is the work of the Holy Spirit. That it's that the Holy Spirit Himself somehow generated a human life as a sheer act of grace, the total working of God without any human work, just human receptivity, if you will, or hospitality, but not conception. And so here's the scandal: she's not married in a culture where. Uh, there's open shame for any sex before or outside of marriage. And we all know how babies get made. And so God enters human history in a total scandal, a complete scandal. And this is important for us. Um, no, no doubt we all have this little inner moralist who says, yeah, well, nothing actually happened that was scandalous. It just looks that way. But here's the deal. In the ancient world, the point is, Perception is everything. It's still like that in our world, isn't it? Um, Because according to social standing, she either cheated on Joseph or her and Joseph got together before it was time, and it is an incredible, unmitigated shame within their family structure. It would make her unmarriable within that context, and it would make Joseph either uh, complicit or a total fool. And so Matthew goes out of his way to describe the nobility of Joseph. Luke goes out of his way to describe the nobility of Mary, and we'll get there at the end of the month. But it still leaves Jesus coming to us in a place of mixed reputation, where we, the reader, know that there's integrity, but everyone in their social world would think the opposite. And so it's a scandal of perception that will define Jesus, not the actuality. And you have heard that perception is everything, and I think it was here in this case. And so the scandal of his parents is this precursor, if you will, to the scandal of the cross. Their son will absorb the sin of the world, 
even though he is guiltless. So it's a very fitting origin story. And we'll see why in just a second. So what, what is Joseph's witness going to offer us as we head into this Advent season? I want to say to you this morning that Joseph's witness is a witness to the scandal of God's grace, where an innocent person receives an unsavory reputation. Um, there are three things I want to show you this morning. The first is that the witness to the scandal of God's grace is seen in, first of all, Joseph's restraint that shows an integrity deeper than moralism. That sounds like a whole lot, and it's going to be easier to grasp as I explain it. But he has an integrity that is deeper than just mere morality. Mere morality or a moralistic person would simply divorce Mary on the grounds that they have every right to. A moralistic person will do what they are entitled to, but integrity is willing to pay a much higher price. Morality simply insists on being right, but the integrity, the kind we see unfolded in the gospel, does what is good, not just what gets the status right, but what is good towards God, self, and creation. And so what does it say that Joseph is willing to absorb the shame of the one who, to all appearances, looks like she's cheated on him. Like, he knows what they've been up to and haven't been up to, and so how does that leave your brain if you're Joseph? Right? You're either thinking, I'm an idiot to stay in this, right? or, um, you know, we'll see in just a minute that he, his horizon for possibility moves in just a second. And so the, their restraint, however, is scandalizing, um, they, they waited to come together, the text says, until after the birth of Jesus. Right? So even though at some point they become married, they still wait to act married, if you will. And so the restraint scandalizes us because we live in a culture uh, where there is no restraint on desire. The highest good in our culture is to just do what you want. That absolute autonomous freedom is viewed as the highest good. And it leaves us anxious because we have no meaning and we have no community because all we have is personal individual freedom. It's overflowing in our cultural context. And so we're scandalized by this notion that you could deny yourself for something else, something greater. His witness teaches us that there is something greater than self, than freedom, so much greater that it merits self-denial. Look what Paul says to his uh, protege Titus. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, Jesus Christ. He's brought salvation for all people, training us, this is what the gospel trains us to do, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. There's that waiting language of Advent, uh, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. The gospel teaches us to na- say no to some things so that we can say yes to better things. This is the grace of God. 
says, I'm going to teach you how to say no to some things so you can say yes to better things, to someone greater. And so we can actually deny ourselves because he gave us himself, which is better by far. And so here's where integrity gets bigger than just mere morality. Their denial of themselves uh, is something, by the way, that they're denying something they had total rights to as married people, right? Marital sex is a good thing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, so don't withhold unless it's like for a time of fasting and prayer for a short window only. Like, that's Paul's advice, a single guy on sex. Um, like, I got you, Paul. Um, right? So, but it's still God's word, okay? So, but, uh, and so there's maybe special dispensations, but he says, don't, you know, don't withhold. Um, but what's up with Mary and Joseph? They refuse themselves so that they don't compromise a larger story of redemption. And that's exactly the point. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus Christ himself. That although he is God, he doesn't uh, exploit that. Philippians 2 describes his character. He says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the, or to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him. And so there's an integrity that goes beyond mere morality. Because moralism just looks out for me. How am I performing? But gospel integrity has a vision for a, a wider uh, birth of relationships and community other than just ourselves. And so what we see in Joseph and in Mary is this receptivity of the gospel that teaches us to deny ourselves for someone greater because we see it in Jesus. They'll, they'll enjoy sex, of course, later. Jesus has brothers, you know, right? It kind of messes with the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary because Jesus got brothers, Right? So I don't think they came from Petco. Like, I think that happened through the way a babies happen. But the witness here at the birth of Christ, the origin story tells us about what we can expect from Jesus. He will save us from our sins. Uh, and, and that's amazing to me. The, the second thing we see here as a witness to the scandal of grace is that... Uh, Joseph chooses to stay in relationship even though it costs him. He, he has every right to divorce her. Uh, and, and this is what he's planning on doing. Verse 19, her husband, Joseph, being a just man, he's a righteous guy, he, and unwilling to put her to shame, he doesn't want to really like scandalize her. He wants to divorce her quietly. In other words, he's a righteous guy, and he, just, he doesn't want to do more damage here. He loves her. He's concerned about her well-being. Um, in fact, uh, I love this quote as well. Too. Well, never mind. We don't have time for it. Um, uh, verse 20. He says, uh, he considered these things. Uh, as he considered these things, that is, divorcing his wife, uh, it says, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, that would leave you dumbfounded, right? Like, this is, this is profound. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the scandal. Don't be afraid of what this will cost you, right? Because what's going on here is of God. And it's of, it's, if it's of God, do you really want to be against it? 
No, no, Joseph, you want to be on board. And so according to every social custom that he knew, he had very good reasons to be afraid. But um, he sees that, that faith takes God at his word and it orders life accordingly. And so he receives what the angel says as authority in his life, which is, again, remarkable that we would be willing to come under the authority of someone external to ourselves. But this is how the gospel works. And uh, it's not crazy for him to think that God would work this way. He's a good Jew, and he knows the Jewish story, and he knows the prophets, and he knows about the story of Hosea, the prophet, who God commanded to, to go marry a, a woman who was unfaithful, would be unfaithful, and would continue to be unfaithful. He says, uh, hey, Hosea, that, that marriage is like my relationship to you, Israel. Right? And so Joseph knows all of this, and he knows that God's still redemptive through it, and that there was a redemption in Hosea's story, and it pointed to a future redemption where God's unfaithful people would be married in union to God, the faithful one. Right? But Mary's not like that. She is righteous. Right? Uh, what happened in their story wasn't by sin. It was by grace. And so there's this scandal of grace Right? where it doesn't always seem to make sense. And oftentimes for us, grace feels almost wrong when we don't get to have our revenge, when we don't get that pound of flesh, when we don't get to assert our correctness over against someone else. And so grace scandalizes us. Um, and it's not impropriety here or adultery. It's actually God's means of saving us from our sins. And so when the angel tells Joseph what's really happening, in spite of all appearances, Joseph is enabled to stay in relationship even though it will cost him. And this is such a beautiful origin story for the one who chooses to stay in relationship even though it costs him his life. For Joseph, it costs him his, maybe his livelihood and certainly his comfort and certainly his convenience and probably far more than we will know, and yet what he receives is the gift of God. Paul tells us that God acts this way. Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing in us friendly toward God, but God moved towards us and said, I want relationship and I'll stay in relationship even though it costs me. And so Joseph is a picture of the one who's the true bridegroom the biblical imagery all points to this idea of God being a faithful lover. We are his beloved, unfaithful as we are in reality. And so this origin story tells us how scandalously God loves. It's never because we deserve, but it's always in abundance. I don't know about you, but you live long enough and you realize how rare it is for relationships to last. And when we bump into Christmas season, we start recounting where we were last Christmas or two Christmases ago. And maybe for you, you realize some of those people that we were close to and running with aren't in our lives. And it, it, it's hard to stay in relationship, perhaps in family or in community. And you've realized that relationships have an amazingly short shelf life. And it can be heartbreaking. And yet the God we serve chooses to treat us uh, kind of the opposite, right? He goes, I'm actually, I'm going to continue after you. I'm going to keep pursuing after you. 
And so we're scandalized by this kind of relational commitment that goes beyond not only comfort and convenience, but cost. Uh, I think this scandalizes us because our tendency is to jettison community the moment it gets hard or when uh, it, it stops being convenient. And so to us as this young church congregation in Beaverton, we're going to look at texts like this and say, what does this have to say to us as a people who live under the gospel, who lived saved by a God who chooses relationship at all costs? And we hopefully will respond in like manner. Yes, boundaries. Yes, truth. But yes, grace and persistence in relationship, absorbing the discomfort and the awkwardness, right? Like sometimes it's just awkward to do the turn and greet thing, right? So my prayer for us as a community is that we would be able to push so much further beyond that, right? To mirror and image the God who acts this way for a world desperate for actual community that isn't just a club based on preference the community based on grace and shared vision. Okay, um, and so this is what we see, right? This is what we see in the King of Kings. The third way that Joseph is a witness to the scandal of grace is by his willingness to lose personal reputation to gain God's honor. This is really kind of a continuation of the last point, but we've said already that Joseph not only showed restraint and he was willing to deny himself for the sake of someone greater, uh, we saw how it meant his willingness to absorb cost, but let's consider for a second the cost that he absorbed. Uh, the text says that when he awoke, he did what he com- was commanded. Um, one of the lines that struck me this week was from a commentator named Craig Keener. He's a really brilliant scholar, and he said this, Joseph's obedience to God cost him the right to value his own reputation. Like, this is, sit, sit with that one for a second. Oh, it's not even up on your screen. Sorry, I, I thought I put it on a slide. I'll say it again. Joseph's obedience to God cost him the right to value his own reputation. Okay, so Joseph is obedient, and it it means that he's actually surrendering the right to God to manage his image. That's done. It's killed, okay? And, And he gives up a control over his future and his family And it's a scandal that won't be forgotten in his social context. That shame will live on in the ancient world. Maybe it affects his trade, it affects his job, it affects where he lives, it affects every interaction he has with his mom. I I don't know, right? It would would for you you and your mom, probably, right? Right? And so the incredible act of faith here um, is... (laughs) is to stick with what the angel says and to to go on and live as if what he said is true. And yet, again, we find this to be a very fitting origin series for someone who will bear sin. Jesus Christ um, will not merely suffer crucifixion, right? This is is an origin series or a story. Um, Jesus Christ will not just suffer crucifixion. He will bear reproach. He will take on shame. Isaiah 25 says that, God will swallow up death forever, looking forward to the resurrection. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
So how on earth does he take away reproach? How does he take away that poor reputation that attaches itself to us and to our little inner moralist inside our head that always is critiquing? Well, this is how. In Psalm 69, David, the king, says, Let not those who hope in you, God, be put to shame through me, O Lord of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's son. What's happening here is David, the king of Israel, is praying in a way that anticipates the true David, the greater David, the ultimate king of Israel, who will ultimately bear all reproach, who will bear all dishonor. You see, Jesus Christ was obedient all the way to death, and his obedience meant that he would give up his perfect reputation. He would die a criminal's death. He would absorb the shame and guilt and reproach of all human evil. And this is how the gospel works. If you want reputation, you have to give it up. If you want to live uh, without reproach, you have to let someone else carry it. You can either have your reputation... Or you can give up control of that and have Jesus' reputation instead. That's what happened on the cross. He takes our reputation. 2 Corinthians 5 says he, he became sin. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we can have his perfect reputation. And so the angel says that this is all to fulfill Isaiah's words, that Jesus' name needed to be Jesus because he's God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. All of these elements to this origin story get down to this moment of realizing you want to know what it's like when God comes among us, when God's with you? When God's with you, his integrity goes beyond just being right. But he's willing to pay the cost to stay in relationship with you. And he's willing to absorb our dishonor in order to do that. And so our response during this season of Advent is, first of all, to truly celebrate all that means, means that we end in a place of trust and saying, God, I will give you my reputation. I'm going to quit trying to earn any reputation or validation or security and significance through anything that I do, but simply to let you take my ill reputation and give me yours, and that that is a gift of grace, that you've stayed in relationship to the point of death so that I can have your reputation, that that is my security, and I approach that and um, appropriate that in my life by trust. Just coming to the Lord and saying, God, I trust you. I trust you for your reputation, and I'm, I'm I'm, I'm dead to trying to manage my own image. I give it up to live in your perfect reputation as my eternal security. And the other thing that this, this Advent hope, this scandal of grace does, is not only does it help us approach God in a way that says, you're my reputation, not my earning, but it also helps us approach one another from a place and a vantage point of the same grace to say, what's been given to me can flow through me because of the Holy Spirit. That I will be a, a person who can stick it out 
who can go beyond just being right to being in right relationship. Because God is with us. And so that's what we celebrate every week at the table, that God has come to be with us. And we come to the table, to the bread and to the cup to say, God, this is what it looks like when you're with us, that you give yourself in love. So we just want to remember that together. I'll invite the band to come up this morning to lead us as we continue to celebrate this morning the reality of the cross and all that that scandal means. I want to invite you to come to the table this morning with a, place, a heart of gratitude to just say, God, thank you that when you're with us, you're like this, body broken, blood given so that we could be a part of your body, to be your people in the world and dwelt by your spirit. So let's pray.